0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbanit Nachama Goldman Beresh on Parashat Vayetze. You can follow Pardes from Jerusalem on Spotify or by visiting elmod.pardes.org. Parashat Vayetze is a fascinating examination of human relationships between men and women, fathers and daughters, husbands and wives. So many of the emotions, intense love, jealousy, anger, hope, are all too familiar to the modern reader. While the story is familiar, there are so many layers to it that it is worth summarizing the sweep of narrative that takes place between chapters 28 and 31 in Genesis. In Chapter 28, Jacob is on the run from his twin brother, Asav, after he has stolen the blessing belonging to the oldest child by tricking his father, Isaac, with the help of his mother, Rebekah. He has a visitation while sleeping on the journey of angels descending and ascending a ladder and realizes that God is with him on this journey. When he arrives at his destination, the country of his grandfather, Abraham, he meets his cousin Rachel almost immediately. Chapter nine describes the first meeting between Jacob and Rachel at the well. When he saw her coming with the flock, he rolled the heavy stone from the mouth of the well by himself, a task that normally required more than three men. This exposition aims to applaud Jacob's strength, which increased due to his incredible, immediate love for Rachel. We are then told that she is unnaturally beautiful. Her older sister, Leah, on the other hand, is described as having soft eyes. It is unclear whether these are beautiful, although the contrast suggests that she is certainly not as beautiful as Rachel. He is willing, Jacob is willing to wait and work seven years for Rachel. On the night of the wedding, Lavan, her father, switches Leah for Rachel. Jacob wakes up in the morning to find Leah lying beside him. Lavan claims that the custom is not to marry the younger before the older. Why it took seven years for him to disclose this information is unclear. Anyway, Jacob marries Rachel when the week of celebration is up, and he loves her even more, the text tells us, than Leah. God then takes compassion on the hated wife and opens up Leah's womb four times in succession. Each name of the first three sons reflects the pain she feels at being the rejected wife. When she has her first child, Reuben, Reuben, she says that God saw my plight. Yes, now my husband will love me. When she became pregnant and bore a son a second time, she calls him Shimon. Again, what she calls him is God heard that I am despised and has given me this one too. In the third instance, she has Levi and she says, now this time my husband will be attached to me. It's only when she has the fourth child, Judah, Yehuda, that she says, this time I give thanks to God, as if with the fourth birth, she finally feels that she has a place of her own, some sort of equanimity and status in the household, and she's able to give him a name not reflecting her emotional state with regard to her husband and her sister, the co-wife, and showing gratitude solely to God. Rachel, at this point in the narrative, cries out at the injustice of it all and demands children from Jacob, who curtly and insensitively responds to her, am I instead of God who has closed your womb? Infertility certainly creates tension between the couple, but in this case, it is not Jacob who is infertile. He already has four sons, and so there is no real urgency for him. It certainly is unlike the tender scene in the previous Parsha when his father Isaac prays for his mother Rebecca to conceive. Rachel is very much on her own with this pain. When Rachel realizes she is barren, she takes action in the manner of Sarah before her but very differently, reflecting the contrast between Avram's household and this one. Here she takes her maidservant Bilhah given to her at at her wedding and gives her to Jacob as concubine. Bilhah then bears two sons to Jacob immediately. Rachel, unlike Sarah, names these two boys, Naphtali and Dan, showing a deep connection to them. Leah, not to be outdone, takes her maidservant Zilpah and gives her to Jacob. She too bears Um, Jacob, two sons, God and Asher. And at this point, uh, there are are eight sons who have joined the household through three women. Rachel remains barren. The concubines and their children remain an integral part of this household. The Parsha is far from over. When Leah's oldest son, Ruvain, brings her mandrakes thought to have fertility powers, Rachel agrees to barter them for a night with Jacob. Leah then goes out to the field and forcefully informs Jacob that he will be spending the night with her. This is a wonderful subversion of the normal presentation of female sexuality in which the woman is passive and taken and the man in Hebrew literally comes in unto her. Bi'ilah or bi'ah is the description of what happens during the sexual act where the man is the active partner and the woman is passive. Later rabbinic commentaries vacillate between admiration and condemnation for her sexual brazenness, but like her sister later in the Torah portion, she uses her female body to achieve her goals, which are to bear Jacob as many sons as possible in order to solidify her connection to him. If not through love, then at least through progeny. Leah has two more sons, Yisachar and Zvulun, and then finally one daughter, Dina, who will play a major role in next week's Torah portion. Finally, finally, Rachel has one son. The text shows a change in her approach. God now remembered Rachel. God listened to her and opened her womb. She is done with the demands of demanding of Jacob a child. She is done with going to the external resources like the mandrakes. She has turned to God and God has listened. God has removed my disgrace, she says. May God add another son for me. In his name, Yosef, we already hear the plea for another child to Mm -hmm. mitigate the feelings of pain and desperation that she has experienced for so many years. At this point, Jacob has had enough of Lavan and wants to leave. He begins to negotiate an exit strategy that will bear him financial compensation for his years of labor. And despite his incredible honesty and the wealth he has brought Lavan, when he himself increases his own flocks, he is met with hostility by Lavan and his sons. He is ready to leave. He now consults with Rachel and Leah. They speak as one. Rachel and Leah say as follows, have we any longer a portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not like foreigners to him? They advocate for leaving their father's home, agreeing that there is nothing left for them, given that as girls, they will not inherit. Jacob finds a way to recoup all that is owed to him, but because of the hostility on the part of Lavan and his sons, he has to flee under cover of night to start his journey back to Canaan. In an aside, we are told that Rachel steals Lavan's trafim, less idols and more like divining figures to foretell the future, which is very appropriate given that Rachel is desperate to know whether she's going to have another child. Lavan comes with evil in his heart, we are told, until God appears to him and warns him that he must leave Jacob and his household alone or risk his own safety. Lavan, stripped of any opportunity to, to avenge his anger towards the situation, demands the return of his teraphim. Jacob swears that no one in his household has taken them. Lavan searches anyway. We as readers know that Rachel has in fact taken them. In an amazingly subversive scene, Rachel, Rachel hides the teraphim in her saddlebag and sits on it. When Lavan enters, she uses menstruation and men's underlying fear of menstrual blood to excuse her inability to rise before him. Obviously, he is not going to approach her or touch the saddlebag that she is sitting on. Menstrual blood in the ancient world and in the Torah was considered Tameh, or polluting and contaminating in some way. She takes what she feels is hers, and she uses the male bias against women to succeed, women's bodies to succeed. As I already suggested earlier, Leah does something similar when she goes out to the field and essentially pull Jacob back into her bedroom in order to bear him more children. At the end of the Parsha, Yaakov and Lavan, Jacob and Laban make a covenant in part ways. Jacob and his family continues their journey back to Canaan. The reasons for the summary above is first and foremost to highlight the complicated tension between the women in the household. Jacob is passive in the face of his wives throughout the Torah portion, with the one exception, which is a burst of anger at Rachel's inability to accept her barrenness. Like many of the stories in Genesis, the twinned relationship between the two sisters creates the platform for struggle as each tries to come to terms with their position in the family, which is directed at the outset by God's choosing to open and close wombs, a uniquely female phenomena. The book of Genesis is filled with the inherent tension built into sibling relationships from Cain and Abel to Isaac and Ishmael, and of course, Asaph and Jacob twins emerging from the same womb already locked in struggle from birth onward. Leah and Rachel are not the first female pair to find themselves in conflict. We already saw conflict between Hagar and Sarai as she was known in the first story in one of the previous stories which already reflected a complex interplay between two women grappling for primacy in the household of Jacob and because we're talking about women, their story revolves around fertility and barrenness. In that story, however, Sarai as chief wife and mother of Isaac is ultimately able to prevail by sending Hagar and her son away, reminding Abraham that she's merely a slave and the son of a slave. Rachel and Leah are unique among all the stories in that they remain together in the same household, married to the same man, until Rachel dies tragically in childbirth. Unlike Ishmael and Esau, who go on to father other tribes and nations, both Rachel and Leah and their respective handmaidens birth the tribes that make up one nation, the children of Israel, all united under the umbrella of Jacob. The Midrashim, of which there are many, intertwine the stories of Esau and Jacob's birth with the stories of the sisters in order to compare and contrast the two. However, unlike that story in which the Midrash largely vilifies Esau, here there is no good sister, bad sister, since both firmly stay within the narrative. And as I already said, both are matriarchs, both are are mothers of the children of Israel. I would like to share a few midrashim that speak to the connection between the stories and conclude with two that show an unbroken bond despite the jealousy and animosity that inevitably occurs when two women share one mass. There is an early midrash in Seder Olam Rabbah that describes Rachel and Leah as twins, which creates a neat mirror to the Jacob-Esav twinship. This will be reflected in some of the midrashim we're going to read, um, but... I'll share an interpretation that has come up for me that Jacob stole the birthright and the lot of the oldest from his brother in not one but two stories in the previous Torah portion. And so by right, he should really be marrying the older sister sister assigned to Esau, according to the Midrash, and not the younger one. And here we see that Jacob wants the glory without the pain. In other words, he wants to marry who he wants to marry. He wants to marry Rachel, the beautiful one, the one he falls immediately and passionately in love with. But there's responsibility to usurping the role of your brother, the position of your older brother. And I think that's why the text tells us that Leah is the older sister. Meaning Jacob, in some ways, is now the older brother. And so uh, Leah herself in the Midrash is going to remind Jacob that he cannot protest her deception since he was complicit with the deception Towards his father, the first midrash that I want to ch- share is in Breshit Rabbah, Parsha Vayetse, Parsha Ayin Siman Ted Zion. Uh, the Rabbi Yochanan talks about Leah's eyes as being weak and explains they had grown weak through weeping. For this was the arrangement: the elder daughter for the yo- for the elder son, the younger daughter for the younger son, while she used to weep and pray. And Rav Huna then said greatest prayer that it annulled the decree and she even took precedence of her sister. So in this Midrash, and it's going to be even more explicit in the Midrash Tan I'm going to share next, Leah is busy crying because she understands that the older son is the wicked son and she doesn't want to marry him. And so she's crying and crying and crying and weeping and praying for salvation. And not only is she saved, but she ends up going first. She ends up assuming the role of the older daughter to the Son who is now the older son in uh, instead of Esav in the Tanchuma, Leah was in fact to be married to Esav and Rachel to Yaakov but Leah used to stand at the crossroads and ask what Esav was like and they would say to her he is an evil man a murderer one who robs travelers and red in a hairy mantle all over a wicked man who has done all things abominable to God when she heard these things she wept and said my sister Rachel and I have come from the same womb yet Rachel is to be married to the righteous Jacob while I am to be married to the wicked Esav, and so she wept and afflicted herself until her eyes became soft. And so uh, both those Midrashim really reinforce the Midrashic character uh, sketch of Esav, which is Esav is the bad son, Esav is wicked, Esav is immoral, Esav is corrupt. Uh, That is why God rejects Esav in favor of Yaakov. Uh, And so here, Leah recognizes that she is being given uh, a husband who is going to uh, diminish her her righteousness, who is going to potentially corrupt her, and she cries and she prays, and then her prayers are answered. In the in, in another midrash, also in Breshit Rabbah, I just want to share with you. It's in seventy nineteen Ayin Yotet. So uh, the sim- same chapter as the first midrash I brought in this series. Uh, when they wake up in the morning, Yaakov then says to her. Um, what is this? You are a deceiver, the daughter of a deceiver. And she retorts to him, and is there a scribe without pupils? Did not your father call you Esav and you answered him? You too called me Rachel all night and I answered you. And so here Leah really throws back at Yaakov Uh, the earlier circumstance that led to his fleeing and arriving in the home in Lavan and reminds him of his duplicity in the earlier story and thus justifies her duplicity, both of which were assumed to be for justifiable ends. So these midrashim seek to reinforce the righteousness of Leah who recognizes the injustice of the match based on birthing order pairing her as it does with Esav. In these midrashim, there's a suggestion that she is complicit in her father's decision to deceive Jacob in order to avoid the unfortunate fate of marrying Esav. And and I like that idea that she has agency uh, and that she essentially takes action in order to avoid what she sees as a terrible fate. Uh, before we finish, I want to share two Midrashic ideas that reinforce the connection between the sisters in a positive way, that despite all of this animosity, hostility, competition, jealousy, and so on, there is deep love and caring between the sisters. The first is in Breshit Rabbah, where in Ayin Bet two six, Rabbi Hanina said, after the sixth son was born, nitkansu kol haimahot, all of the matriarchs gathered tifkod they gather together there's a sense of this community of women of leah Bila, zilpa and Rachel coming together and saying to to God, "Dayenu Harim, there are enough males among three of us. tifkodot zot, bestow one on her." And so here you see the support of the other women that they want Rachel at this point to have the child she so desperately wants. And in Brachot sixty uh, a, uh, Rav Yosef brings a Midrash. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her Dina. And the Midrash asked, what does it mean afterwards? And Rav says, Leah passed judgment on herself and said, 12 tribes are destined to descend from Jacob. Six Six came from me and four from the maidservants, that is 10. And if this fetus is male, my sister Rachel will not even be the equivalent of one of the maidservants who each have two sons. Immediately, the fetus was transformed into a daughter and she called her Dina after Dean Judgment. And so uh, this Midrash, which repeats itself in a number of places, has Leah, actively praying that the fetus that she's carrying become female so that her daughter at least have, uh, her sister, I'm sorry, have an equal share in uh, in contributing to the 12 tribes equal to the other concubines. And of course, that is what's going to happen. Rachel is going to have two sons like Bilhan and Zilpah. But the Midrash really plays on the deep caring and sensitivity that Leah at this point and of course, it's after she has six sons. So her status in the household as mother of half the tribes is already established. At this point, she can open herself up to giving to her sister, asking for in prayer for her sister's needs to be responded to. And then God responds. I want to conclude with one of my favorite Midrashim. It's an echarabah, and and uh, it turns the lens to the wedding night of Leah and Yaakov and how that took place. I've already suggested that Leah was clearly complicit. It's more than suggest. There's no way the Lavan could have forced her to do it without some sort of agreement on her part. What we're going to see in this Midrash is that Rachel also ends up being an active participant in the deception in order not to ashamed, shame her sister. So in Eich we have a very long proem. It's the last proem in a very long series of proems. Proems are introductions to uh, to the Midrash, the Midrash of Eich They're called Ptichot in Hebrew. And this is uh, number 24. And here we have a series of biblical characters coming and pleading to God to stop the destruction and exile of the Jewish people uh, on the eve of the destruction of the first temple or in the aftermath, immediate aftermath of the first temple. Although it could be the second temple, it could be the Inquisition, it could be the Holocaust, it doesn't really matter. It's about absolute uh, turning away on the part of God. And um, Moses has come, and of course, before Jeremiah has come, and Avram, uh, Yitzchak, and Yaakov have come, and the heaven and earth have come, and the letters of the alphabet have come, and none of them are able to persuade God to stop in this Uh, direction he's taken to annihilate, to to not annihilate, but absolutely punish uh, the Jewish people. And so at this point, the last voice and the only female voice is that of Rachel. And she jumps into the Midrash and she says as follows, she breaks into speech and she reminds God, it is revealed before you that your servant Jacob loved me and toiled for me for seven years. And when those seven years were over, I was supposed to marry my husband. And I knew my father was going to deceive my husband and substitute my sister. And so I went to my husband and I told him, now again, this is her husband, but before they've actually consummated the marriage. And she gives him the sign that she had arranged so that he would be able to tell who was in bed with him. And on the evening that they substituted my sister for me, says the Midrash, with my husband, I delivered over to my sister all the signs. That is a Midrash that is largely known through Rashi. What's often not known is the next part, which is a very explicit and quite erotic detail. More than that, says the Midrash, I went beneath the bed upon which he lay with my sister, and when he spoke to her, she remained silent, and I made all the replies in order that he should not recognize my sister's voice. I did her kindness, was not jealous of her, and did not expose her to shame. And if I, a creature of flesh and blood, formed of dust and ashes, was not envious of my rival, and did not expose her to shame and contempt, so should you, a king who lives eternally and are merciful, be jealous of idolatry, in which there is no reality and exile my children and let them be slain by the sword and have their enemies do with them as they wish. And so she basically says to God, How can you be jealous of idolatry? If I could overcome my jealousy to protect my sister and lie under the bed and listen to the man I love having sexual relations with my sister and essentially act the part as if I were the one in bed in order to prevent her utter humiliation and degradation, then shame on you, God. Shame on you for not being able to overcome your jealousy of these inanimate objects that are nothing like you and that really don't uh, compete with you in any way and you should be able to have the strength to overcome uh, that sense and so at that point immediately in the midrash the mercy of God uh, was stirred and he said for your sake Rachel I will restore Israel to their place and I will remember what you have asked of me and so really despite all of the tension this midrash reinforces the deep love and connection that remains side by side with the jealousy and the competition. And I feel this is representative of the many stories in Brashid that we can return to over and over again and find uh, our voices, our experiences in the narrative and hopefully become inspired and lifted up and, uh, and, and learn more and more both about ourselves and the Torah. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast today. Be sure to visit us on Spotify, where you can subscribe to any of our other podcast channels, or visit us at elmod.pardes.org. Thanks for listening.